when it was kind of funny, uh, it was about two years ago or a year and a half ago, I had a, uh, had a doctor, a local doctor that came up to me with this, with this magical new term that he had heard called EBITDA or EBITDA or whatever they, they call it. Uh, it was a term that I, that I spent a lot of time in, gosh, back in 1997 at the University of Missouri, uh, learning about. And so, uh, there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions about that term and, uh, the math on that gets a little bit fuzzy or funny when you start talking to folks because I'm not really sure they understand exactly what EBITDA means. The Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a really fa- fascinating discussion with Brad Biriego who practices in um, in St. Louis, Missouri. And we talked about the, the economics and the actual numbers that doctors experience when they go through a private equity equity purchase. And, um, and so I, I, I felt, felt like the discussion was uh, very informative for a number of reasons. Uh, and one of the things that came up in this, in this is that I've kind of had this realization over the last few months that um, almost every single person I have a conversation with, we have some discussion on private equity and we have some opinions on what we think private equity can do to a profession, to a, a specific practice. But one of the things I realized was that I've seen people talk about private equity who've talked positively about private equity in terms of what it does to the profession and what it does to businesses. But I've never seen somebody who has, but, but all those people I've seen and I've read have, have had ownership stake in this new private equity company. So they actually have, um, you know, they, they want to see that new model thrive. The question I really want to know is, I'd love to talk to somebody who has actually sold their practice to, to private equity, had an exit plan, and thought it was the best thing uh, that, they, that they could have done and, and is still happy about their practice situation today. So if you know anybody that is in, those, in that experience and in that situation, I'd love to have a conversation with them so we can shed light on some of their, their positive things that they, um, that they view. And if they are, um, you know, if they're bound by non-disclosures and contractual allegations because of that sellout, I'm happy to keep their names quiet. I can even even have the technology to disguise their name. So with that, uh, if you know anybody, please reach out to me and and we'll get them on the show. And otherwise, uh, please support those who support us. Make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star review and also make sure that you're giving us a, a, a specific description of why you, you enjoy the show and uh, that really helps in terms of our podcast rankings and um, enjoy the show. So, so the, the thing that I, I think about when I hear people talking about EBITDA or EBITDA, they'll, they'll say, you know, I hear private equity is offering six to seven times EBITDA. And so the, the immediate thing that we think about is, Okay, if I'm if I'm taking 30% out of my practice and I've got a million dollar practice, then I'm going to get six times that $300,000 a year. So you know I'm I'm going to make 1.8 million dollars on my practice. Right, and I I think that in, and that was the exact conversation that I had. And what I what we had to kind of back to, or we kind of we went back and I said, well, really, there's something I like to call true net. Hmm. And so when I value a practice or I look at practice value. Um, one of the things that you have to do is you have to back out of all of your numbers um, what you're paying doctors. So in, in our industry, for some reason, we've we've gotten this concept of net or what you're bringing home okay. to include what a doctor makes. 
Okay. And as a business owner, you, you, I always tell you, you got to split it into two things. You're an owner in a business and you're an employee of a business. And so you're going to have to pay a doctor to see patients. Right. So if you want to do the easy math on that, to, to go back to the exact same, uh, exact same example, you do a million dollars and let's say that you bring 30% to the bottom line. Well, you're probably going to pay a doctor about 15%. Okay. That seems to be kind of an industry average. I mean, it varies. Right. But if you were to do the math on that, then, and you didn't take anything else into consideration, basically that would cut that $1.8 million valuation down to a $900 right. valuation at six times EBITDA. And so pretty quickly, that's kind of a sobering thought because I think people are reading this in trade journals and they're getting super excited and thinking my million dollar practice is worth almost $2 million. Right. And um, it's just not accurate. So so essentially what you're saying is that... Um, you, when, when you hear six to seven times EBITDA, what is interesting is our profession interprets that one way, but the reality is if they were a growing practice and they hit, you know, if they're growing at 10, you know, five, you know, a, a robust, let's say seven to 15% and it's, and they're doing that year over year and now they're hitting a million, then that's pretty much what their practice would be worth face value. What we would normally think of, right? You're saying it'd Absolutely. be worth 900,000. That's probably what they'd, they'd be a face value what they're used to thinking of exactly as opposed to the 1.8 million but the other side of that is if you're growing at 7 to 15% what's and you hit a million and you let's say you grow 7% next year that's 70 grand more right, right? so how does that come into play do people think about that when they're when they're uh, or would, what do you think about that as when you're buying practices well so so there's two scenarios that I've been asked questions about one is would you buy my practice and then the second one would be okay should I sell or should I continue to own my practice? So let's take that same concept. And let's say that as the owner in the practice, you were to go out and, and just stop working and you were to hire a doctor to come in. Well, you're still cash flowing out of that million dollar business, let's say $150,000. Right. I mean, these are, these are simple numbers. It's a little more complicated. But for argument's sake, that's... So if you, like you said, though, if you continue to grow that practice at 7 to 10%, the hard part is the math works out to where your value at the end of five years doing no work. Now, granted, you have to manage the business. Sure. So there is some work there. But if you sell out to a private equity firm, one of the things you're going to find is, is that your workload is going to be very different than what you're used to. Mm. Um, you're going to be going from seeing maybe 15 uh, routine exams a day to maybe 25, 30. Mm. Um, then you're going to get paid as if you were an employee, right. which gets back to that 15%. Um, and then you're going to turn, now granted you have the money up front, but in most cases, those private equity groups pay you a certain percentage at the beginning. And then mm. you better hope that, that, that it's the right private equity group. Mm. And then they're going to pay you when the next event occurs. Ah. And so the question is, is how many events are going to occur? Right. And, uh, and how many times are they going to be able to sell the same practice at an increased value? Hmm. Now, the nice thing is if you own your practice and you can say, hey, we're growing or option two would be. Um, say it's a million dollar practice, I'm going to step out of patient care uh, 75%. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take and I'm going to, or let's say you say I'm only going to work 20% of the time some, and I'm going to bring in a doctor to work 80%. Well, you could pay that doctor 80% of that 15%. Right. You're still seeing patients, so you stay relevant, but you're getting to keep that ask, the, the, the ownership portion of the business. The other thing is, is that as that grows, you're going to be able to sell that at a higher number. Right. And so if you think about it, like you said, a 10% growth, that million dollar practice uh, is, is going gonna, is gonna to increase in value over the next five years to where you're going to get over a million dollars when you do sell. The 
this because there is a point in time of selling it. The other thing that people don't think about is, is, is how do you want to get the money? Um, do you want all the money right now? Okay, right. well, that's that's a pretty large event. And, but that's, and that's what people think. Right. That, so that, then they think that number, so even if it's, if, if it's let's say, a realistic expectation, $900,000, boom, it's in my pocket. But there's two things I can do with that money. I could walk away and start a new practice, or I could stick that money in the stock market. Right. And there's a reason that private equity doesn't want to stick their money in the, in the stock market, right? right? They see that value of that additional 15% as something they can't get in the stock market. So that's that's super interesting to me, right? right? I mean, it's it's like a dividend. I mean, yeah. you know, if you think about it, um, in in one and in, in probably one of the smartest investment guys I know in the country is a guy named Andy Lick. Um, he he always talks about investing. So his primary portion of his business is investment. Yeah. But what he talk he works a lot with um, medium to large businesses, and his his concept is is that the number one thing you can control is a business that you know a lot about. Uh, yep. And so his point is, is that you're putting a lot of faith, and granted, he, there, there's a concept of diversification that makes a ton of sense, sure. right? Um, things can change, but um, if, if you, you're, you're not really that diversified if you basically go away from your core business activity, what you do well, yep. and then you basically just invest in something that you probably don't know much about at all. You're putting it in a mutual fund. And there's a lot of history of success there, and that's fine. But number one, you're not gonna get to keep all that money. Yeah. Uh, Uncle Sam's going to come take a, a big chunk of that. And, and, and that's the other thing about planning is that if you do look at a way that you can sell your practice over time, there are ways that you can, I mean, not, not do anything wrong, but you can try to avoid taxes. Because in some of yeah. these situations, in these tax transactions, there's double taxation. If you take in income and you pay your tax on that and then you sell something and then they have to pay um, a capital gains tax on it, you're, you're getting taxed twice. And so there's a lot of situations where if, if somebody's willing to transition over time, the thing that a lot of older docs have or, or more experienced docs have is, is they have time, mm -hmm. and, but, they, but they also don't want to pump all their money into the stock market. It's really risky. Yeah. Um, but if, you, if, you, if you're part of that and you help it grow, you're growing the practice, and then you have a known buyer, that probably is, in most cases, your best option. Hmm. So, so I've had a lot of people on that have, and the overarching sentiment is, pretty negative toward private equity in, in both the selling of the practice and then also what it could potentially do to the profession, the worry of what it's going to do to the profession. So if I'm, if you're playing devil's advocate, what is the good part about private equity if you're a practice owner? So, uh, you know, obviously the good part is if you could get an offer, if you're 65 years old and you could get a full offer or an above market where you get the money up front, um, you know, I, I do think that there is, that that is, and, and you're not in a situation where you've been able to sell a practice. Because mm -hmm. there's some areas where it's been hard to sell yeah, practice. totally. Um, so, so on that front, I, it's not that I don't understand that. So what I'm talking about is a situation where you, where you can, where you can work with someone and, and you find a win-win. A yep. Um, the one thing that I find that is good for the profession, I really feel like for private equity is, is that it's really forcing us to start to understand our numbers. Yeah. Um, I, you know. And so maybe I'm going in a little different direction. No, I'll I think get back it's great. In a no, second. no, no, yeah, it's great. You know, is the thing that I find is is that when when folks don't understand their numbers, they're that's why they want to sell mm. because they're struggling. Mm -hmm. They're they're bringing in a million dollars and they're having a hard time, uh, you know, paying basic bills, paying lab bills, pay, you know, uh, being able to pay bonuses to staff. And really, what it is 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 they they really have they they've allowed things to get kind of out of control. 
and they're they're managing their books on what's in the bank. Yeah, that that it's, that is so common. Is yeah. what do I have in the bank? Yep. And uh, boy, I hope I have a good month. Yep. And then I'm going to take money out, just kind of, you know, as it comes. Yeah. And it's so the Mick Kling, what Mick Kling talks about all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you look at you know the business of optometry and some of the things that that were that I think have been positives to come out of this kind of rush of excitement over private equity and then fear, yeah. right? Is that I think if people start to understand their how their business is run, I think a lot of those problems go away. Because mm. really, when you look at it, there are some pretty pretty standard numbers out there that can show you whether or not you're healthy or not healthy in certain areas. And then it becomes less about, I emotionally want to do this yeah. in my business versus this is not a good business. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, in my, in my eyes, you and I kind of talked um, offline about this, but um, so walk me through when you come in to help analyze somebody's practice, whether you want to buy it or they're looking at asking you whether or not it's worth selling at this point, specifically, you know, what are you looking at where you can kind of analyze those numbers relatively quickly because you do this a lot? Right. Um, what do you look at? So I would say that, it, it, I mean, it's pretty much a P&L statement. Mm -hmm. um, and then what I do is I basically look and I'll say, okay, here's how much income you have. And then here's your cost of good level. Okay. So let's back that up. And, yep. and so we're defining terms for everybody. So we're on the same page. Yep. When you talk about income, are you including, you're including doctor pay plus ownership? Yeah. Okay. So, so what I would say is, is um, for, you start with what does the business Okay. Right. So, so, and then you're going to go down your P and L statement and that's already set up. I mean, sure. and, and really to be honest off the top of my head, I can't think of every exact percentage. That's okay. Um, but if you were to go down, you'd want to basically break it out into, um, what are your staff costs, the people, and then cost of goods, and then, you know, what it costs to have building and everything else. Right. So I think it's like people, um, goods and things or yep. like that. Um, but what I do and then what you can also do when you're looking at this is, what are the additional things that you have in your practice? Cell phones, if you, or, you know, there's other things that you need to take out of that and say, okay, by owning a practice, right. these are kind of additional benefits that your that your practice. Right. So, so you have you, to lump that car payment into basically what the ownership takes. Exactly. Is. Yeah. So I mean, you you need the car because you own two practices, but 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 really, if you didn't own the, if you sell the practice tomorrow, now you have a car payment. Right. So, um, and then what you do is you go down to the bottom mm -hmm. and then I subtract out what you would pay a doctor. Okay. Okay. So, so whether or not I own the practice and I'm working there, or if I sell the practice, I guess what I always look at is, is coming back to this concept of true net, which is once it's all said and done and you've paid doctors a fair salary, the same way you would pay staff a fair salary, um, what do you actually bring home as profit? Yeah. Right. And and that tells you what you could actually get a loan on and pay off the net. And so what what I then look at is is how many years would it take me with that number hmm. to purchase a practice, or I can then turn around and show someone if you just own this practice. Yeah. How much money would you be able to? And really, you know, there's a lot of differences of opinion on that. If you can get if you're at ten to fifteen percent, that's a pretty that's a pretty healthy practice. Mm -hmm. um, now it could be a little bit more than that. Yep. If it becomes less than that, then you got to think. Then it goes up past. I, I kind of use a rule of thumb of five years. Yeah. Sometimes when something gets past five years, it becomes a a a riskier investment. So let's say you are a junior doctor and you don't have the money to buy a practice. Yeah. 
Well, then, of course, that time period is going to be longer than five years to buy into the practice because the, the doctor owner is taking on the risk, yep. right? I'm, I'm paying you probably more than you're producing at the very beginning. You're going to help me grow the practice. Um, and so if I buy in, then yes, of course, that number might be seven to 10 years. Right. But if you're looking at selling or just buying the practice as an investment, if you go past five years, it starts to become more risky. Right. So, and that's, that's always the tough part is everybody wants to kind of add in that doctor factor. But if you went and worked anywhere, um, a doctor is worth X amount of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so then, so then you're coming in, let's say we're the, um, either the young doc coming out or you're looking at buying a practice. Essentially what you're saying is a really healthy practice might have, uh, like you said, let's say 15%, right. Mm -hmm. Of, of actual, um, true net. Yes. And they're a million dollar practice. So then you have to figure out, okay, that means that every year, um, to, to value that practice, if I'm paying more than for five years, it would basically be $750,000. Right. Would be what that practice is worth as the owner. And that's what you could pro potentially get a bank note for. Right. It, it, I would say if you go now, optometry, the other thing you're going to have to understand if you go into that and get a bank note, right. you're probably going to have to have either financial backing. Right. Okay. So that's one thing I've seen with a lot of these is, is you either have to have somebody in your family that can financially back you hmm. or you're going to- Or you um, already have equity in the practice. Yeah. You could have equity in the practice okay. or you have money of your own. Yep. So um, the one thing that I have seen are younger doctors that have student loan debt that yep. don't have, like, let's say their parents helping co-sign for the loan. That becomes hard to get the money. Hmm. Okay. And so from, from young doctors, that's one of the struggles that I think that we can see a little bit of. Um, that can be avoided, you know. Um, but once again, that's where that person doesn't have the ability to just go get the money. So that's where that, that length of time would increase. Yeah. So then what would, what's your recommendation? Like, like, let's say I come to you and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to sell my practice. Is it the right time? Um, what, what kinds of things are you wanting to know from me? Or maybe I want to say, Hey, Hey Brad, I want to buy this practice. Right. Like what are the things that, that you, um, that you would kind of let me know, like, Hey, it's probably the right time. Or what are you doing now? Like what are the things that they're going on in your brain to make so, some of those recommendations? So, so let's start with a doctor that's looking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or, or not sure what he should. The one thing I would start with is, is basically trying to understand, okay, how much money am I making right now? Even if I didn't see a patient, I found someone else to see a patient. Okay. And so the question is, is, and could, are you growing? You know what I'm saying? And, and if you, and if the answer to that is one, you're pretty healthy in terms of cash flow, mm -hmm. meaning you are bringing, taking money out. Uh, on a regular basis and you are in a growth mode, just don't understand the need to sell now. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so so because if you've got that free cash, um, you would then be, t you'd have time to do other things. You know, right. so there's other investments, other things you could do. Um, but, you know, if you're, and then I still believe that you can sell that practice for more, probably, you know, five years from now than you could that day. Yeah. Okay. So, so that'd be the person that's kind of, I don't know what to do. Right. I've gotten the, I've heard this private equity is paying five to six to seven times EBITDA. And I think I need to sell now, yep. you know, now if you get somebody at the end of their career, and I think that's one of the problems. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I would probably to anyone listening to this, the one thing I would say is, is if, if, if you kind of know what you want to do, start thinking about it now, Yeah. you know, you mean um, how long? So if you want to know what, what you want to do, yeah, yeah. So I would say, so, so let's say that you're in your fifties, 
Yep. I'm just making this up. It seems kind of that's when the bug starts to hit a little bit. Like, man, I've been doing this for I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm, you know, I'm 55 years old. You know, 20. Yeah, 30, maybe 40. Yeah, yeah, 30 20, years. Yeah, 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 25, 30 years. Sorry. Um, you know, I, I'm just I, I don't know if I want to continue to do this. Um, what I would suggest is is one really spend some time with your accountant to understand your numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the second and, and figure out what it is you're you're bringing TrueNet and those types of. The second thing is, am I growing? Yeah. Okay. And would it be a smart idea to freshen up my office and do some things to make a, a, a small investment that would allow my practice to be desirable yeah. when I do sell it, yeah. right? Because a lot of times you'll see these practices where they kind of die and, and you get to that end and the practice looks dated, the equipment's dated. Um, so the doctor that comes in, it, it's, it's, it's not as desirable. Do you think that the... So why do you think... Is it because... People sort of think, well, I don't want to invest in the practice because I'm going to be gone soon. Yes. That's the that's the yeah. that's what happened. And and the math I would do on it is is if inevitably when you remodel a practice or if you update it, it grows. Yeah. It's it's funny, you know, I I I don't know if I've ever seen somebody and probably it's just the you re energize it. Yeah. Right. So sometimes, you know, that's what I find when I come to like a vision source meeting. I get excited, right? So I'm re energized and I see positive things that happen in my practice. Yeah. So sometimes that's, I always tell you, that's kind of the disappearing value of vision source sometimes is, is um, getting together with folks, but just getting re-energized. Yep. So you do that one, you're probably going to start growing. And that investment will be pennies on the dollar if you do start to see your practice grow again, right. as opposed to kind of taking that steady decline. Right. And so I would say that if you're starting to think about it, come up with a three or a five or a 10-year plan, depending upon where you are, look at where you are and, and say, okay, you know, where's my practice now? Kind of reevaluate where you are. And then I know it sounds crazy, but then probably invest a little bit into your practice mm-hmm. to get it ready to sell. I kind of tell people it's no different than if you're selling your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you think about selling a house, I mean, the things you're going to get money back on are is a are pretty bathrooms and, a, and an updated kitchen, right? Right. Now, it, it's not logical to want to do that, but that's how you're going to sell. That's what's going to differentiate you and get a premium price. Uh, because if somebody walks in and they just can't see themselves in your house, they're walking right back out the door. Does private equity look at that same sort of thing or are they just purely say, give us your numbers? They, are they actually setting foot in these offices and, and looking at the niceties that are there? And I, I the- would say there's two sides to that. Number one, um, they depending upon the size of the deal, yep. you know, I, I would say that, that 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 varies. But here's the other reality. In in some of the areas, what you'll find is is that let's say there's a conglomerate of docs. So sometimes you hear about these doctors. Okay, 10 doctors got together and they were going to sell to private equity. Right. Well, not all the doctors are getting the same valuation. Hmm. And so a lot of times you're going to get doctors that are going to get maybe that six times EBITDA, and you're going to get guys that are getting two to three times. Hmm. And so um, I think that, and that's pretty obvious which one of those doctors it is, yeah. you know, because you've got to be at a certain dollar amount to where your number, the amount that you're bringing in at the end is enough to make it valuable. Yeah. I mean, why would it be logical to pay, um, you know, a $400,000 practice, the same as a million dollar practice, the same as a $1.5 million? Right. It doesn't. And so, um, you know, I guess you kind of got to figure out where you are. And um, a lot of times, you know, reinvesting doesn't mean that you have to go in and, and gut rehab and spend, you know, two or three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. New carpet, new paint. Yeah. And, and yeah. maybe maybe. And there's a lot of things you can do in terms of just freshening up your optical, yeah. uh, maybe getting rid of the the poles and putting in glass shelves. Um, branding. Yeah. It's kind of funny. We, we did a uh, we did a facelift in one of our, our opticals um, where we basically had the big you know, the cabinets with the, with the bars. And we, we basically just took out the bars, put in glass shelves. We put branding above Mm -hmm. all of them. 
and then got risers and put you know the frames on risers. No kidding, every single person that walked in that office like, oh my gosh, you have so many more options. Yeah. Well, in fact, we had the exact same frames. We just could show them what we had and it looked different. Yeah. And so, um, and they were excited. It's kind of funny. You know, a lot of times, you know, you want your patients to be excited about coming because, I mean, we're still... Um, I, I feel like a lot of vision source practices are so heavily medical, hmm. but if you really look at your numbers, yep. what's bringing people in the first time, yep. most of the time, sure. is 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 a managed care uh, initial eye exam, and then it kind of goes from there. Yeah. And so if if that optical doesn't speak to them, they may come once, um, but they may not come back again if if they find a different experience um, out there. Yeah. So then. You know, if we if we kind of come back in in your area in eastern um, Missouri, St. Louis area specifically, um, there's been quite a bit of private equity. <laughs> so you know, I was talking to Amir a couple a uh, couple weeks ago, and um, and he you know he had talked about a little bit about um, you know people that had sold to private equity and then they're you know they're not as happy anymore. So there's there was a big big purchase there. Was it yeah. Acuity that? Yeah, so you had um, you had Acuity, and then you also had I, I think it was Eye Care Partners. Okay. Um, it, it was basically Clarkson Eye Care and Crown Optical. And and who was own, who owned Clarkson Eye? And that's like a what sixty location practice or something. Yeah. yeah. So so who it, owned that? So it was it was basically um, now I, I, I'd have to go back and look sure. at some of this, but I think it was about ten doctors. Okay. Um, there was an original group, Larry Jailing, I believe, was was the original owner, and then there there was kind of a secondary group that, and so. That, I mean, and it's kind of funny, when I first got into Vision Source, I mean, I, I kept saying, guys, you know, th this is the model, um, you know, that, that, is, that looks like it's something that private equity would be interested hmm. in because they had back office services, they had a lab. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, and then you had Crown Optical, which is probably more of a standard, just um, not optometric. And, and, and Clarkson was majority doctor-owned, okay. okay, in St. Louis. And then the other one was was not doctor owned. Hmm. It was more of a um, more kind of like an optical shop right. type thing. Um, but yeah, I mean both both were purchased. There were basically in a, in a about an eighteen month time period. There were over a hundred practices purchased in the St. Louis kind of metro type of area. And now you're seeing ophthalmology being purchased mm -hmm. in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. So so then um, you know when you have a big we have a conglomerate of practices like that. There's probably um, there's probably sort of already a a feel of um, you know some sort of feel to the, to those practices. Uh, whether that's did you get the sense that each individual location still had its own feel, or was it pretty standardized across all those locations? So, so when you think about that purchase, um, it was a little bit different because because Clarkson, even though it was doctor owned, mm -hmm. was pretty much it had become kind of like. A yeah. Okay. And so it had its own brand. Right. And so, um, and I will say this, um, no, I'm not trying to down. No, no, no. Person, yeah. But, but I mean, you know, you have doctors that I think like being employed and are happy in that situation. You have a lot of doctors that, you know, they, they, they're looking to get out, right. you know? Um, and then crown was more, you know, it was just like a corporate purchase to a certain extent. Um, you know, what was interesting was, is then there was a secondary group that I think tried to sell. Mm. And, uh, and at the end they found out that it was going to be eye care partner the Clarkson group that was going to buy them and everyone ran to the, ran to the hills. Oh, really? Well, the reason is, is they understand what it meant. What it meant was, is almost no flexibility and time off. It meant a, a set pay. Because mm. what you hear with all these things, oh, I'm still going to get paid yep. my full, plus they're going to pay for it. Well, right. 
um, that's that's not the way it works. So that that's a reality. So that's yeah. not just the, you know I'm hearing that from multiple people. We've even heard some people offline um, that have have made that same you know that oh, yeah. same thing where they thought it was going to be one thing and now it's not that thing. And even even where they're not able to take summers off. Yeah. To be with their kids. You know, they're used to, they own, they own, like it was, you know, large practice. They sold it. They thought, oh, I'll just be able to take a couple weeks off here and there, go on trips. And they basically say no time off over the summer because we're so busy at that time. That's a reality. Yeah. So the one thing I would say is, is that we've actually hired multiple doctors from that setting over to our practice. And that's the number one, uh, the number one um, complaint they had was lack of flexibility. I mean, mm. even as much as I want to go to my kids' ball game. Hmm. Being able to leave early, um, everything counts towards paid time off. You know, yeah. so there is no there. The flexibility is is almost none. And what's hard is is that they they promote that it's not going to change. Hmm. The other thing that I think is pretty interesting, and you've seen this around the country, is what you call a separation from the office. It behooves the the aggregator oh, yes. to go in and separate you from your office yes. because what they don't want is they don't want Brad Birgo or Chris Wolf to be, they don't want us to be the draw. Right. They wanted our name um, to start with, but then what they want to do is they want to separate you. Yes. So what you see a lot of times, especially with, with doctors that are there, they start to move you. <laughs> and uh, and, and it, it seems innocuous at the time. It doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, but it's it's very intentional. And it's to try to still offer that we exist. Yep. But boy, they're not here very much anymore. Um, would you like to see Bill Smith? Yep. And so, you know, that is a, tr and what's hard is, is that you think about your lifestyle. You know, I've been doing this for 18 years now. I have my patients. Yep. I have, I'm very comfortable. Um, I'm very profitable because my patients, I, I have like-minded patients. Yep. I have people that value daily disposables, that value uh, top-end progressives, that that value the things that I think are important. Correct. You know, and I think you've cultivated that yes. over those 18 years and the patients that don't value that aren't going to come to you. The patients that are, that do value that are, are you are reaping what you sow. There's no doubt. Yep. I mean, and I would say that when we, you know, we've purchased practices before where the, the culture was different. Right. And the big thing that we had to go through and cause you, you gotta be careful. You don't want to just destroy what yeah. made that practice, what it was, but you've got to make a change over time to fit, how, what your culture is, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the problem and is- And that's what private equity will do. Yeah, th th but they don't see a tie. They see you, hmm. and it, but then they're going to change all that stuff in the background and then have you try to explain it, hmm. right? And I think you uh, we, you said this, which was kind of funny, is, is that you know when you're hopping around and you're using this product and that product and it's not consistent, um, you know, th that's when you start to lose credibility, right? right? You, know, um, you know, being able to have choice now, I think sometimes we we kind of overthink it. We have too many choices. Yep. Um, but I think that as a business, choosing things that fit your your culture, your story, um, it matters. And and when you get into a corporate setting, that isn't what matters, hmm. you know, because at some point, how are they going to make that money back? Exactly. You know, and, and this isn't sometimes people, they make it more complicated than it has to be. Numbers are numbers. I mean, hmm. at some point, if I pay a super premium for this business, there's only two ways that I can get that money back, grow. So now, Chris, guess what? Instead of seeing 15 to 18 patients a day, I need you to see 25 to 30 patients. Right. Because got, I've got to get more people through the door because I've got to pay the money to get this because I need to sell this to the next uh, private equity group or the next company. The second thing is, is to strip out 
um, products down to the point where I can make more profit. Right. And so, um, and then also um, staff. I've got to find ways of of being more profitable as staff and just go down the line with all those types of things. Yeah. So um, it's not a it's not a you're going to do exactly what you've been doing for 18, 20, 25, 30, 35 years, no changes, and then we're just going to pay you triple what your practice is worth. You know, I, I think that's the concept that's out there. Um, and I, what you find is, is when people sell, um, the, the guys, I, I wouldn't say there, I'd say there have been some guys out there that have probably sold early on in the process that were the, um, that, that, that maybe got a, that got a good deal, yeah. uh, because they were the first person in an area or whatever else. But I would say those people are also, uh, pretty miserable. And then really? a lot of times it's their associates that are really miserable hmm. because that's the, that's where it trickles down quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So then. So, I mean, have you had, have you talked to somebody that is very, you know, three, four, five years out is, is in fact happy with what they've, with, with that cell or are they sort of like, it's fine. Like at best, are they just kind of like, it was fine. You know, I, I got out when I wanted to get out. Maybe I'll do something else. I'm just seeing, I mean, what, what's the sentiment? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I've met anyone who was like, oh my gosh, best thing I could ever do for my practice. Hmm. Like, you know, or, or for me, yeah. um, I, and, and maybe I just haven't run into people and maybe they're all on an Island. Well, right? I, you know, I, I've even reached out to see, you know, if anybody wants to talk about it in a positive sense, like I've, I've right. tried to, these people that I know that have done that, I've actually reached out to, and nobody wants to come in and talk about it. And it tell, tells me like, I'm thinking, well, I mean, if, if you, if it's really a, a wonderful deal, why not just say how wonderful it is? And, and, and that's my question is that's funny that you say that because I, I guess I hadn't thought about it quite like that. But yes, I've had some people that are like, yeah, you know, I think it was good and I think it was the right time. Yeah. So they make statements like that. But I'm with you. The, 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 it would seem if it was this unbelievable thing that the same, the same PE guys, yep. the private equity groups would be putting these people front and center yeah. and having them go out there. Um, now, do I think there are people, um, and now you're seeing on the, on the ophthalmology side, so do I, there's a guy in St. Louis that I think on the ophthalmology side is happy. Yeah. Well, he's also part of the decision-making process. He's part of the machine. Yeah. Um, he is part of, he sees the next event yeah. and he, and he sees where if he can get other guys to get on board, yep. but that's not what most people are doing. Most people are selling the practice and then they've got to work there for three to five years and it's different. Right. Yep. And so, uh, I'm not. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of funny. I I think that those people would be out there in droves yeah. because there there have been enough events that have happened, and it's happened over a certain time period to where those folks would be in every trade journal, yeah. you know, out in front of everybody, yeah. kind, of kind of talking about. It. Yeah, and then, and I think now that you say that, you know, the the ones I've seen even make any comments about it in trade journals are um, are the ones that still have some skin in the game right. on the board, or you know, they've got they've got some ownership in this new in this new entity that behooves them to, you know, continue to buy up other practices for that second event. So that's, that is interesting. The other, the other thing that I, you hit on again, and, and I, I, it does, it doesn't, um, it doesn't surprise me at all, but it, it is very striking to me. The, what the potential of that has to do for the profession is the, splitting that doctor up into different locations. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the idea and, and you see this, it's very common. You know, you, you have a group that has three or four locations, three or four locations, that's it. And you know, they might have 
three doctors or four doctors that are rotating through those those locations. Yep. But everybody's doing one day at one. Like, why not just put one doctor at one location? From a from a continuity of care standpoint, as we move as a profession to a more, you know, a, a you know, I won't call it a medical model, but, you know, dentists tend, you know, a, a dental office, right? A really high-functioning optometric office that's doing a ton of medical and also a lot of, a lot of um, you know, retail as well. Like you said, you know, I'm not... You pull me out of my main practice and put me someplace else. I've grown for 11 years with those patients, and and I'm very profitable in that practice. And so, um, so now you expose me to other people. Why would you do that? Well, one, it decreases the continuity of care because I got to have a patient back for a red eye or scratched eye tomorrow. Well, now I got to see my partner yep. and or my associate and um, or my the other the other uh, employed doc that's in that practice. And it's okay to have that sometimes, but like for chronic disease management. I mean, you can be a great charter, but you know that, that like, you know, you know, your philosophy on how you're going to manage this glaucoma patient, you can look at that chart and know immediately yep. what you're, what you were thinking at the time. And it would take, you know, you looking at my chart, it would take a little while to kind of go back through all those decisions that were made. Yeah. And so, um, so that can't be good for the continuity of care, but what it's really about, I think is. Brad, now we own all your practices. We're going to put you a day a week at these five locations. And if you get mad and you decide to up and leave, fine. Because I can just backfill you. Yes. I can backfill you tomorrow. Um, and, and even if those patients are upset at that one location that they didn't get to see Dr. Birgo, then no big deal because it's only one day a patient. Right. Right. And, and that's what I think you'll see is they may not do it the first six months, hmm. but slowly but surely... I would agree. I mean, let's say that you were the main owner in three locations. It would it would make if I were running a business. Yep. It would be the first thing I would consider doing because, to your point, you're limiting risk. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and really, the main guy is that. And what's kind of funny that you bring that up. So, when I started, you know, 18 years ago, uh, we the doctor that I bought with originally, I think we grew too fast, hmm. and uh, and I think. In his mind, we can just open up offices and we grow. And so that's actually how I got brought on was I, I was brought on to actually run the practices and be a doctor uh, because we weren't as profitable as he wanted. And so we were rotating through offices, yep. okay? And I did that for probably seven to 10 years mm. where we were kind of rotating through. And then over time, we brought on associates and then we started basically saying, hey, we have this, this is our primary office is, yep. is kind of what we started doing. And to where then we still fill in the offices. And what's funny is we've gotten to a point now where in our in our four locations, we actually took we bought a location, we bought a fifth location and absorbed it back into one where we could have one hmm. under one roof, which I think helped with with care and, and service and, and things of that nature. But um, what was interesting is is that now I'm one of the few doctors that kind of still goes to another location. Hmm. And at this point I go to that location because it's closer to my home. Yeah. And so I do it for family, friends, things of that nature, which I think is valuable. Yep. But I'm not as good there. Like, like I'm, I'm not the same doctor that I am in hmm. my primary location. Hmm. And if you were to ask all five of our doctors, you know, okay, so, so if, when you go over, you know, Dr. Pavis, when you go over to St. Peter's, how, you know, how, you know, are you as good there yeah. as, as you are in, in our St. Charles office? She'd be like, no, no, no. Really? And, and she's like, I, I like it. I like splitting up the week and, and I'm not against doing it every once in a while. Uh, but, but there's a calm, there's a, there's a, there's a, just a, a way you practice. And so I cannot imagine spending every day in a different office and rotating back. 
Yeah. I, you know, as I've gone through my career, um, I'm not saying you couldn't do that to grow. And there's sure. reasons why you do it. So I'm, my point is not to bash that no, as no, a no. concept. No, no, no. It is just that if you can get to a situation, where, and then also that person can help grow that practice. But really, the, um, the private equity group is looking to buy enough real estate to where then they can use advertising and other models with which to pull people back in. Yep. And so, um, so and, and, and they're good at getting people to come in the door. Hmm. But I think there's still this market. I, I, you know, I was kind of, I was talking to an ophthalmologist in our area. We've, we've got several ophthalmologists that are very friendly that want to stay completely independent because we're seeing ophthalmologists sell now too. Right. So long-term relationships are, are probably going to go away wow. because they are now selling to, to basically our competitor. Right. And so, um, what's interesting in talking about to them is I feel like there's this secondary market that exists for a group of like-minded doctors ophthalmology and optometry to work together uh, to kind of fill that that void of I because these private equities are starting to look more and more like a lens crafter. right you know they're getting a Walmart lens crafter I kind of in our area I, I basically equate Clark's and I care to no different than going to Walmart hmm. or lens craft <laughs> and so um, so I feel like there's this this market and and really that's where vision source needs to to go is is to basically understand that there's the, the market is still there to remain independent. We just have to have better back office services. We have to have better, um, you know, optical. Um, you know, that's why I'm such a, and sorry, I'll, I'll take yeah, this yeah, chance to kind of, you know, the, I feel like the frame dream is the single largest investment that vision source is going to hmm. make. Um, and, and the reason why I'm so passionate about it is I believe that we are three years away from basically everyone having an expectation of, of three day turnaround. So, uh, you know, I, I still wait, wait, so, so why do you say that? Is it, so why is that? Yeah. So, so I was, sometimes it's, it's simple stuff. Like I was talking to my wife and I said, okay, buddy, if you came in on a Monday and you had an eye exam, when would you, when would you expect to have your eyeglasses back? And when would you like to have them back? And her answer was, I'd like to have them back on Wednesday, but Friday, you know, probably at the, hmm. and so why? Well, everyone's shopping on Amazon, yep. you know? And so, so they are two days. Well, you know what? You guys are making a custom product, so I'll give you an extra day, right. but not more than that. Right. And I do believe that that's the way the rest of the industry. Mm -hmm. And so my thing is, is right now, I would say most of our practices are telling people it's going to be about a week. Mm -hmm. That's in business days. Right. And so it might actually be more like seven to 10 days. Right. And so I, I just think that when we think about running our businesses, um, there's going to be a market there. I think for that, that personal, you know, hand touch. I have my doctor. I'm not seeing yep. just whoever's here at that point in time. But then when you get to the optical, the, the thing that kind of drives growth within the practice in terms of uh, initial visits there and are they going to come back to you for medical visits, if we don't fix that, mm -hmm. that's where we're going to drop off. Pretty quick, hmm. You know, and, and, and that, it's hard to put a dollar value on that, you know, uh, because I, I think that what's going to happen is, is that the industry is going to go that way pretty quickly. And, uh, and, and, I, and the reason why I say three years, I just – you start to see where the the aggregators are coming together. Where are they gonna? They're not gonna want to discount everything, right? Right. You know. So there's already low cost options. So I would rather be in that in that service driven, uh, you know, customer service market where I can charge a premium, but yet I, I deliver something that isn't being delivered in the market. Yeah. So when when you talk about frame dream back up because there's there's some people that are listening that are vision source, some that are not. Okay. Yep. Um. So what you know? Describe frame dream to me. 
uh, and then we'll talk about maybe some some ability for like pushback that I've heard yeah. people that don't want to be in Frame Dream because right. because of some concerns. So go ahead and describe Frame Dream. So, so Frame Dream is basically a a system with which you you have frames that are housed not only at your office but also at a lab to where you can start the job immediately upon submission. So the advantage is that you don't have this delay of getting a frame to your office or to the lab and then back to you. And so um, the so we are in three of our four offices. We are 100% frame dream. Hmm. We'll be 100% frame dream in our fourth office at the end of this year. And so what we've seen is, is our average turnaround time has gone from about seven business days down to about three and a half. Hmm. Now there are some pro there are some sure. super complicated ones that take a little bit longer, and I think some of the things you've heard in terms of complaints and stuff like that have been the one-off type situations. Yeah. But as but when you look at the majority of our jobs, we're able to we're able to basically um, get to that point where we're getting close to that that three-day turnaround time. So so, but what what you what you give up a little bit is you you, you basically um, you're you're displaying the brand, not individual frames. And so that's what we've talked about with our staff is, is that our staff was used to buying, they, they had frame reps come in and they shopped, okay? Yep. So they shopped for frames that they liked, okay? Well, that's, that's gone out of our office. What we do now is we basically display a brand. Yep. And so that brand is, is basically housed and, and, and there's, there are basically deciders on the vision source side and on the brand side, let's say Ray-Ban, for example, where... Ray-Ban is saying, hey, here are the top SKUs in our, in our industry. And then we, we have consultants through, uh, through Vision Source who are coming in and saying, okay, let's pick a collection. And then you now are basically displaying that collection. It's different. You know, the thing I would say is, is we do have collections in our, in our office. But what we found when we actually switched over, that our office, when we, when we actually did an inventory, our offices averaged 45 different brands. Hmm. And we were averaging 10 to 12 frames per and so the problem was we had a lot of frames. Yeah. We just weren't actually displaying brands because the evidence shows that you need to have about 25 SKUs hmm. to actually display a brand. Okay. And so that's where that's where the disconnect comes. And so one of the things I would I would basically throw out to everybody is just go through and this takes no time, just basically start writing down brands, you know, not companies, but like, yep. you know, like Guess and Ray-Ban and right. Oakley or whatever. Yep. And then how many of those frames you have okay. and figure out what your, how many, are you actually displaying the brand or are you just displaying 700? Right. And so that was a big mind shift. When you think about purchasing, like what does that do when you shift your mind from, I want to have 700 frames to, I want to have 12 brands to fully display that. What did that do in terms of, uh, you know, patient acceptance understanding of what your practice is about what what types of things did that do you know what's funny was is i feel like the the first the first switch over in terms of who had to buy in was the staff mm -hmm. and what was interesting we we had a it was so funny we we switched two offices over and then we took frames and we put them in a in a third office and uh and so we got to a point where it was about half and half frame dream and the other half were frames that we had mm -hmm. you know still ones that were active and what we found was, is about after about two months, our sell through on the Frame Dream product was like 75% of the sales hmm. and non-Frame Dream product was 25% of the sales. Hmm. And so we went to the, and they were super negative on it. Like they're like, 
we we don't like this. We, you know, I don't. We, we like to pick out the frames. They don't know what we what our patients right, want. Right. I, I heard all these things. Well, I go back in, and the number one person, uh, Lisa, who's my top uh, optician in that office, I was like, "What's going on?" And she's like, "Yeah, for my patients." She always says, "My patients." Mm-hmm. Um, for my patients, I want to get that job back in in uh-huh. less than a week, and so and I know I can go over to that brand, and within that brand, once I identify the patient and kind of what they're looking for, I can find something that they're going to love in that in that mm-hmm. for that brand. Well, before what they were doing is they were going over and picking their top five frames that they liked from whatever yep. group, and that's what they were showing. So what was interesting is is that the staff was like, you know what, it's just easier for me to show them things and then create second sales because we're within, we're within a concept. It's, it's kind of, I used, I, you know, and I, and I would still like to do this. I want to take my staff to like a, and I don't even know if there's JCPenney's even open anymore, <laughs> like a JCPenney and a Nordstrom, right? So a JCPenney has a lot of products all over the place mm. on these racks and it's hard to see what's going on. A Nordstrom has brands. Now, that brand may only have two racks, right. but you get a feel for what that is. Yep. And then and then from there, the patient, the, but a, yep. a consumer can make a decision on it. And so that was exactly what we found was in one of our offices, we went from almost 1,000 frames down to 750. Went from 40 brands down to 20 brands. Hmm. And, our, and, and really, to be honest with you, what's funny is the, the patients are like, you guys have so many more frames. They think you have more yes. now. Because, and, and really, part of that then came into the fact that we weren't really branding as well. Yeah. The other thing is walk into your optical and see if you can say, without walking up to the board, what brands do you have in that, in that optical? Mm. If you were to stand not next to a display, but if you were standing across the room in the waiting room, could you look over there mm. and see what brands are you displaying? Mm. And that was the other thing that we found was, is once we started to display that super visible, it draws people over. Oh, you know, we like one of them was we we had um, I think it was a Coach or if it was it doesn't really matter. Yeah, they literally I didn't know you had Coach. Right. Well, God, we had had it for ten years. Yeah. And so that, that just that draw, and they probably were even put on a Coach frame at some point when they were. And they didn't know. They didn't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's interesting. So, what would you say if um, you know, I'm I'm kind of I haven't brought Frame Dream in yet. I don't want Vision Source or Luxottica or Essilor to dictate what you know what I'm going to show on my shelves. Right. What do you say to that? You know, I would say that they probably kind of are to begin with, hmm. because at some point, you're, if you don't have Luxottica's, let's just say Ray Ban. Right. I've used that example a lot. Um, if you don't have Ray Ban's top twenty, well, then you need to rethink what you're displaying because at some point. I, I, w- I was in Italy and, and we went to the plant there and the, like, I think one of the Ray-Ban frames, the new Wayfair okay. um, in a black non-polarized, that skew does more sales than almost every other frame company in the market. Wow. That, that skew, not, not, not that style, right. not, not that, that color, right. non-polarized. Right. Okay. And so that was kind of eye-opening to me. Where and I'm not. This is not an infomercial for Luxottica. No, that's fine. Yeah. You know, we, we we don't we aren't we aren't 100% pro Luxottica. We're not negative on it. Yeah. Um. But what I would say is is that at some point, what what we've looked at because I've been a part of this frame dream thing since minute one is is having a a a diverse mixture of frames that would represent the brand. Right. And so I think that's where you kind of got to go with it because right now taking nothing away from my opticians, they love to shop. Yeah. Well, now what's funny is when we get our refreshes and they switch out the frames, that's when everybody shops now. 
Hmm. So we have one day where everybody looks at all the new frames and sure enough, somebody in one of our offices want to buy something and, uh, you know, or they use it as their free birthday pair or whatever else yep. that, you know, they do. Yep. And, uh, there's excitement around that. But now I, I have a much better handle on what my inventory is at all times. I'm, I'm displaying my best sellers 365 days hmm. a year. And when they go over every single collection is displayed by brand and, and really you're choosing from. 25 options within that, yeah. within that, within that area. Yeah. So, and like I said, I, I get it. People, that was, what was funny was in my office, my, my frame buyers, I called them frame shoppers. Uh, they were, they were upset at first and now I haven't heard them complain once. In fact, if a rep comes in, what we talk about now is, is we want that rep to come in and talk to our, our team members about, about what the brand is. Yes. Why yes. would somebody want yes. to buy this product? Because they are spending a, a super premium. Yep. And that's what you hope are happening is people are coming in and buying a cool frame because yep. that's what gets somebody to come into your office. That's right. And if they understand why they bought it, that's a, that's a lot different than, ah, I spent $500 on these glasses. Yep. You know, but if they're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is. Did this, you know this. these hinges do this and, yeah. you know, they're indestructible and we can, you know, pull on this or, you know, they, you have this little piece right there that see that makes yep. them unique. Nobody else. Like that's, that's the brand. And yeah. Yeah, it's um, it matches this handbag exactly. You know, and that handbag costs five hundred dollars. Yeah. So it, it's it's not a just. I guess it kind of is a justification. But if you think about it, how much do entry level products in most brands cost? They're really expensive. So if somebody thinks I'm putting this on my face every day, and a Coach handbag costs five hundred dollars, right. and I only spent four hundred dollars with my insurance on this, that seems like a value instead of a negative. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um. It is, it is very interesting. We, you know, you brought up the point of, of not wanting to have something in your practice. And for us, we, um, I can't remember how long ago it was, but we, we had patients that were coming in asking for Ray-Ban and they wouldn't even look at the rest of our stuff because right. we didn't have Ray-Ban, right? right? So then we brought Ray-Ban in and, and sure enough, we, we sell a lot of Ray-Ban, but we now have those people that weren't even looking at other options in our practice because we didn't have Ray-Ban that now they will look at all these other brands and, and they may not choose Ray-Ban, but they weren't looking before because they didn't think we had brands that they identified with. So what you're saying is, you know, those other, those people are identifying with the brand, whether it's, you know, whether it's Under Armour or Nike, yep. right? Like with our clothes, right? I know the clothes I like, the styles that I like. And so in general, I'm going to gravitate towards those sections in the department stores. But, um, but I'm probably not even going to go in the department store if they don't have Under Armour. Right. Well, so we went through the exact same cycle where we fought and fought and fought and we were never going to do it. And then it was almost like the warm and fuzzy blanket. They were willing to stay in there. And, and I laugh that that's one of the things we talk about now is, is so let's say we have a brand, let's say Michael Kors. Yep. And this is not true, but I'm just using this sure, example. Sure. Let's say Michael Kors was not per performing as well as a, a, another brand that didn't have the same name value. Yep. Right. But Michael Kors might be why the person stayed right. in the office. Right. And so to your point, that's what we find a lot is, is like, you know, with, with men, they need to see names like a Nike or an Oakley or right. I don't even, you know, whatever it may be. And on the women's side, maybe they need to see Coach and Michael Kors or, or whatever, uh, Tom Ford. Um, but but they, they'll, in the end, they're going to choose the frame that's right for them. Correct. But they know this is the place to shop. Right. I, I use, go to, you know, yeah. everyone go to Nordstrom. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like you're, you, you went in there to buy a, um, you know, a polo shirt. But what's funny is, is that 70% of the time they sell a Nordstrom, hmm. their own branded hmm. shirt, which is the most profitable product for them. 
And so, but, but the reason you, you didn't go in there most of the time until you own one of those to buy a Nordstrom shirt, right. you went in there to buy some brand that is in there. When you got out, you're like, well, this is the shirt I want. It fits perfectly. I'm good to go. So, uh, yeah, we saw that a lot where people were like, well, if you don't have this, I, 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 I wouldn't want to shop. Right. right. And, uh, and so, and I think that's what we find a lot of folks doing. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't be unique and that you shouldn't have unique products. Of course you should. Um, but I don't think that if you walked into one of our offices, 100% frame dream, you wouldn't say that our office is hmm. that you, that, that, and, and part of that is, is who are we and how are we, how are we showing the, right. You know, I would agree. I mean, if you think that, a a, um, you know, this frame and this style and this color is your best-selling frame. And by God, if you don't have that, the practice is going to shut down. I think you're probably not looking at it from a logical standpoint hmm. because otherwise they would, they would always have those, you know, things would never change in right. department stores. They'd never change style. And really, um, you know, Frame Dream has no interest in having poor moving products. Right. In fact, that would, that would negate the whole concept because you know, from a lab standpoint, I don't think that this is a huge profit center selling the frames. Right. Because if we're buying them about what we're buying them from the other ones, then it's about efficiencies and us, you know, obviously using lenses and things of that nature. Right. But yeah, back to my, probably the, the one I talked about originally, I still feel like that vehicle, although it is not perfect and hopefully over time it will get better, um, is the way we're going to get from where we are now, hmm. which is a seven day, seven business day turnaround time to where I think the industry is going to go, which is a three day turnaround hmm. time. And, and I, I think sometimes you want to leave, you know, you, you don't want to wait until that's what's then what are you going to do? Right. You know, and the other thing is, is that you don't have to go into frame dream a hundred percent. Um, I would say that you do need to hit a point where it is a large enough portion of your optical to where it's not just something hard yeah. for your staff. Yeah. I found that when we went from 25 to 50 was a huge jump and the staff bought in. Hmm. And when you can get to about 250 frames in Frame Dream of your core products, I bet what you'll find is is that the same people that are negative about it will all of a sudden start selling that product because it comes back. Yeah. Right. It's it's an easier process. Yep. That's right. Patients are happier. And yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, Brad, I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you being on. I think it was really helpful. And um, we'll have to do this again because I'm sure we could talk for another couple hours. <laughs> no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I, I never pass up an opportunity to talk. So. Awesome. Appreciate it. Yep.